Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. I really want to encourage the ladies here to come out this afternoon for Cheryl and Mary's session. Cheryl's been preparing prayerfully and biblically for that, and I think you're going to find it's a thing that not only builds your faith, but that God is going to meet you in, um, in deep places if you come out, so... But encourage that. We've been hearing stories, and then during the prayer time for the persecuted church, you know, it's really struck me that you have to hand it to the tyrants of the world that they understand the power of the gospel in ways that sometimes the church doesn't. I mean, you got some little skinny evangelist on a bicycle in Burma, and the government shakes in his boots. They know what's loose. <laughs> they know that if you have one Christ follower filled with the Spirit of God in Eritrea, you better put them in a shipping container, because if they get out on the streets, they could subvert the whole thing. You gotta give it to them. The, the Islamic nations, the, the, the oppressors of the earth, that they understand the power of the gospel that I wish we could wake up to. You, you, these people don't have weapons, they have Jesus Christ, Him crucified, and Him risen alive in their hearts, and they're dangerous. Now, this morning, I want to talk about becoming dangerous, and I'm going to talk about it in a way that initially will strike you as counterintuitive. I want to talk about rest. It doesn't seem like the way to overturn the world, turn the world on its head, is to go take a nap. But I want to convince you, hopefully by the time we're done today, that maybe one of the best things you could do to have Christ come into you more fully and be more manifest within your speech and your actions and your attitudes is to be still and know who is God. In fact, I'd like... I'm going to jump around and mostly I'm going to use a text out of John today, but that quote, be still and know, comes from Psalm 46. Oh, Cheryl, could you fetch in my bag my glasses? I'm at that age where things are difficult, things sort of swim. Thanks, babe. Uh, Last night, if you're here, Chris Wright exegeted quickly Psalm 96 and described it as one of the most missional texts and I uh, thought he did a brilliant job of showing that. I would suggest that Psalm 46 is one of the most missional texts as well. 
I want to read it for you. This is one of the sons of Korah psalms. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks a bow and shatters a spear. He burns a shield with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is so at work in our world. In this broken, angry, frustrated, rebellious world. God is waging war against the wars of the world. God's desolations are laying bare the desolations of the world. God is so at work in the world. But in the, in the midst of this psalm that calls us to participate and witness the activity of our God... In an angry, rebellious world, the God who triumphs, the God who is is sovereign over it. It says that you need to be still and know that there's certain aspects of the character of God, certain dimensions of the work of God that the people of God will miss if we meddle over much. My friend George Brewster, how old is George? 85, 86? 87. He's a Caleb. He flew in World War II RCAF, Royal Canadian Air Force, which is a Canadian branch of the Royal Air Force from Britain. Good pilot. But one of the things that George did in his flying days is he had to train young pilots. And George, uh, and, and uh, I actually first heard about this story from somebody else, and then George has confirmed it for me, and he told me about how he'd do this exercise with pilots. When a young pilot is learning to fly a plane, after they've kind of graduated past the point where they can do a takeoff and they can do a landing and they can mostly handle it in all kinds of conditions, late in the day, there's a lesson that they're taken through. And this is how it used to work. They now have uh, very technical equipment for this. But in the days when George was training pilots, they would put a loose-fitting bag over the pilot's head once the plane was in the air, the, the, um, the, the pilot in training. The 
the, the instructor would put a loose-fitting bag over his head, take control of the plane, the instructor would, and do all sorts of loop-de-loops and Turkish headaches and whatever. He'd just get the plane discombobulated. Turned upside down, the, the student pilot didn't know which way was which, which way was up. And after he had done this a bit and totally thoroughly confused the pilot, the young pilot, he had plucked the bag off of his head and hand the controls back to him. And he had so many seconds to figure out where he was in relationship to the earth and to get the plane flying at a proper angle to the earth. Do you know what that lesson is called? Recovering from an unusual attitude. (laughs) I've been doing that ever since I met Jesus. (laughs) I mean, the attitudes that I came into the kingdom with, the attitudes of selfishness, of greed, of fear, of covetousness, of anger, of bitterness, of complaint... Ever since Christ accosted me and claimed me as his own, I've been recovering from an unusual attitude. Do you know that the, the you know, we talk about people in recovery. Um, we do a lot of that ministry at our church. I'm, I'm interested to hear about John Luke and the ministry they're doing in Belfast. We're all in recovery until we're completely formed in Christ. <laughs> until people are, are, are committing acts of um, mistaken identity with you and me and and wondering, are you Jesus, sir? Are you Jesus? Until that is happening on a consistent basis, we're all en route to becoming more and more like Jesus. We're all recovering from this unusual attitude. And over the last few days, I've talked about how a Christian in a church that is that you, you punch us, you kick us, you throw us in jail, you put us in shipping containers and we come out praising and thanking God that's subversive that's missional but you got to recover from an unusual attitude (laughs) the normal temptations of the flesh to just get angry and scared and bitter and then we talked about love how this love of Christ that sets us free, that we experience his love for us, and then we begin to love a world that doesn't love us, that Jesus warned would hate us. And we overcome that evil with good, and we overcome that hatred and with his love for our enemy, how subversive that is. And yesterday I talked about prayer, just this force of little weak saints on their knees, storming heaven, calling down the power of the sovereign God. I love... uh, Are you using any of Revelation today? Okay, you know, I stole a bit of Cheryl's thunder the other day, so I'm careful now. Um, Revelation 5 says that every prayer that a saint prays is incense in the throne room of God. Do you know you've never wasted a prayer? That it's a delight to God, it's a fragrance to God, it's something that's in a bowl before God and it's sweet to him. But you know what Revelation 8 says? That at a point of God's own choosing, he takes the incense, which is the prayers of the saints, he adds altar fire to it, and he makes a malt of cocktail. 
And he hurls it down to earth, and it says there's peals of lightning and earthquakes. And in other words, the situation changes. And so every prayer you prayed has not been wasted. It's not always been answered in the way we wish it was or the time we hope for. But it's in the presence of God, delighting God, and at a time of his choosing, he'll add his altar fire, hurl it back to the earth, and nothing will be the same after that. And so the church on its knees, the church believing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world and that one saint on their knees makes hell tremble. Today I want to talk about Sabbath rest as a way of actually becoming dangerous and engaging the mission of God. And one of the key ways that Sabbath, receiving this gift of God's rest, saying, just lie down, just sit still, just be quiet, watch me be me. Watch me do what I'm doing in the world. From the ends of the earth to the ends of the earth, I'm at work, but you will miss it if you get too preoccupied with your little program, your little efforts. Watch me. And one of the ways that Sabbath makes us dangerous and gets us back into the mission of God is it's a means by which God helps us recover from an unusual attitude. You remember the story of Martha and Mary, don't you? I mean, Martha's so busy. And there's Mary doing nothing. And that's irritating sometimes, isn't it? When when you're stacking chairs and there's just somebody having a conversation with with a speaker... (laughs) There's so much to do. And Martha's getting so irritated with Jesus, with her sister. Now, here's an interesting thing about the Martha Mary story. It comes in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And there's two stories, um, or, or two parts of Luke 10, before we get to the Martha Mary story. The first one is Jesus, at the beginning of Luke 10, we're told he sends out his disciples to do mission. That's where he empowers them and he sends them and he says, you go out now, you be my witnesses. And, you, and that's where they come back and they say, man, even the demons submitted in, in your name, we finally got this thing right. The kingdom of God's in our midst and we've seen it. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm sending you out. You're going to be dangerous. You're going to be endangered. But you're going to do my work in this world. Go. That's the first part of Luke. The next part of Luke is a parable prompted by a question from a teacher of the law. The teacher says, um, how can I get saved? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? And he says, I you know, do nice things, good things, do the law. And Jesus says, Good. And, uh, but he wants to justify himself, the teacher of the law. So he says, well, who's my neighbor? If I'm to love my neighbor, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story. You know the story well, right? This parable of the good Samaritan. And how does that parable end? Go and do likewise. 
So what we have in Luke up until the Mary Martha story where Jesus goes over to lunch is that the gospel is about going and doing. The mission of God is very activity-oriented. Go, preach, heal, command, declare, announce, find broken people and go to extraordinary lengths to help them out of their circumstances and restore them to the fullness of God, what God wants for them. Go and do, go and do, go and do. And I'm not assuming that Martha was taking along and heard all of that, but she's picked up something of the heartbeat of Jesus, and she knows that the mission of God involves a going and a doing. And so there's Jesus in her home. And she wants to demonstrate that she knows what it is to live out the call of God in her life. So she's going and doing. She's going into the kitchen, and she's making egg salad sandwiches for the kingdom of God and the incarnate God in her midst. And her sister is not doing a thing. And she's ticked. Do you use that word here? Ticked? I, I, I heard the word hacked off. She's hacked off. She comes out and says, Jesus, tell my sister to get off her duff and get out here and help me. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better thing, and it won't be taken from her. (laughs) Okay, I'm confused. Go and do, go and do, go and do. Be still and know. What, what? Which one? Yes. You see, my definition of Sabbath is that you imitate God in order to remember you're not Him. See, Jesus, uh, God says, here's Sabbath, look at six days, you work, I work six days, one day you step back from work, that's what I did. You imitate God in order to remember you're not him. Because sometimes I think we can get so busy in the enterprise of the kingdom and the work of the church and the the urgency of missions that we actually get get worried and upset about many things and we're we're so driven and, and we're striving so much to make it work that we forget who actually is sovereign over all of this. Be still and know I'm God. And and, and sometimes we need to step back from all of that doing things to remember and receive again from Jesus Christ. Come unto me if you're weary and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and what? And learn from me. You've got to relearn the rhythms of grace, the power of my sovereignty. You've got to recover joy. You've got to recover from an unusual attitude. You've got to be filled again with my character and my spirit because I don't need a whole bunch of grumpy Christians out there. I want 
the joy of the Lord to be your salvation and to be that point of attraction for a world that's already worried and upset about many things. I want you to be a sign and symbol of something other than that. Let's go to the John 12 story. I was going to spend some time in Joshua 5. Now, John 12 is about Lazarus. And here's the interesting thing about Lazarus. He's the brother to two sisters. Do you know what their names are? Mary and Martha. There's Mary and Martha. This is the the man who's a brother to them. And so we have a story in 1 John 11 about Lazarus dying and getting sick and he dies and Jesus doesn't come in time and... And then Jesus raises him from the dead. But uh, chapter 12 picks up. It's kind of the sequel to the resurrection story. And I'm going to read a a bit at the beginning and then jump down to verse 9. And then come back to the bit at the beginning. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived. Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was been given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. That's her nature. She just loves to be in the kitchen most days. Don't you? I mean, I, I really like Martha, by the way. Because um, I like to eat. I like egg salad sandwiches. And you have, um, I, I saw the other day the weirdest sandwich. It was... It just looked delicious, but I'd already had lunch. It, it had grapes in it. Is that an Irish thing? It, I mean, we'd never have thought of that in Canada. But anyhow, praise God for grape sandwich-making Marthas of the world. People who serve, praise God. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about missions and service, servanthood. Praise God. Martha serves. Now, just skip over a little bit and listen to what Mary's doing in verse 3. Mary took a pint of Pyrenoid, an expensive perfume. She poured it in Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary's nature is to be at Jesus' feet. These beautiful little iconic pictures, these beautiful tableaus of Martha doing what Martha does and Mary doing what Mary does and when it all works together it's wonderful but sometimes they get into rivalry with one another now I want to jump down to verse 9 before I go back to that um, those early verses it says meanwhile um, and the the section that I'm cutting out is uh, Judas gets pretty uptight about what Mary did with the perfume But it says, meanwhile, verse 9, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there at their house and came not only because of Jesus, of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom 
Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Now, I want to suggest to you that those three things that we learn about Lazarus in those verses 9 through 12 are at the very heart of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ on mission with God. Because verses 9 through 12 tell us three things about Lazarus. One, that he's become as interesting as Jesus. Right? I mean, people are coming into this house and they're like, oh, Jesus, it's really nice. I've heard a lot about you and that thing you did with bread and wine was really cool and that's, um, that's great. That's great to me. <gasps> Lazarus. Can I... Is it okay if I touch you? Like, what was it... What was it like? You know, I mean, they're just gripped by this guy who was dead and now he's alive. He was thinking and now he smells okay. I mean, they're just... Lazarus has become as captivating, as intriguing, as winsome as Jesus. The other thing we learn is that Lazarus has become as dangerous as Jesus. To the enemies of Jesus... Lazarus is as much a threat. If, if they've got to kill him, they've got to kill him as well. The third thing we learn is that Lazarus is incredibly effective in evangelism. Because many on account of him are coming to him. It's, it, Lazarus isn't taking the glory for himself. Lazarus hasn't turned this into some nifty little program that you sell to other churches and all of that. Lazarus, the minute you ask him what this is about, he just points to Jesus. And saying, you know, I've never died, but I feel like I'm dying. Every day I get up and I feel like I'm dying. If I put my life in his hands, well, yeah. Yeah, he'll make you feel alive. I feel empty. Will he f- yeah, he'll fill you. On account of him, many are coming to Jesus. Now, let me suggest again that the very heart of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus on mission with Jesus is to become as interesting as he is, as dangerous as he is, and incredibly effective in leading others to know him and put their trust in him. Is that not the whole game? Now, this is a bit I left out. Go back to verse 2. Martha's serving. Verse 3, Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. The man who has become so interesting and so dangerous and so fruitful for the kingdom is doing nothing more than just kind of leaning back on Jesus. Do you think the world looks out their window at the the blur of our coming and going and says to themselves, I so want to meet the God that you know. 
Do you think the, the world looks at how busy we are with not always producing much out of that busyness, fruit from it, and saying, where do I sign up for that? I need more to futile things to do with my time. Don't you think it's a missional thing that we would recline with Jesus when it's time to recline with Jesus so that we might, it might be said about us the same thing that was said about Peter and John. Here are unschooled, ordinary men with incredible courage and they took note that they had been with Jesus. You see, the mission of God goes forward not just on our activity, but sometimes on the, f- on the basis of our inactivity, of our just taking the time to recline with Jesus. To beautifully waste time with Jesus. To not be any any hurry or any rush to go anywhere because Jesus is there. Now, Martha and Mary, Jesus rebuked Martha because... Um, she's just getting uptight and angry and frustrated as she does this work for the church, work for the kingdom. She's not enjoying it anymore. She's doing it out of just dead duty. And he says that Mary has chosen what? The better thing. Do you ever wonder what the best might look like? You see, Jesus was speaking Aramaic, so, um, but what we have in John is the Greek text. And the word that gets translated is Mary has chosen the agathos. She's chosen the good thing. She's chosen something that's good. There is actually a word in the Greek that Jesus could use if he wanted to describe the best thing. But he doesn't use that word, or the word, John doesn't use that word. She just, she's chosen the better thing, but not the best thing. Do you ever wonder what the best would look like? Um, here's the word in the Greek for best that Jesus doesn't use. Simfero. Simfero. Now, if you don't hear it, the root of that is the same root of the word symphony. What is a symphony? It's many instruments playing in harmony together that they're not warring against one another, not rivalry of notes and rivalry of instruments. The flute comes in when the part for the flute is written and it comes out and the violins don't play against one another, then they play over top of the music, etc. And they've got the deep bass instruments, the cellos and the oboes and all of that playing underneath to support it. But it's not cacophony, it's harmony of many, many parts is best. And this is what I think is really going on, is that Jesus is saying, listen, girls, Mary, Martha, if I had to choose embittered action over serene attentiveness. I'll take the serene attentiveness every day. If I have to choose you being busy serving the kingdom but hating it in your heart, 
angry at everybody, frustrated, worried, over somebody just sitting there all day long and never getting up and doing anything, but they're listening to me. I'll, I'll, I'll pick the lady sitting down. That's better. I won't take that away. But I think if Jesus was saying, if I had to have best, here's what I would want. I want a symphony. If you could somehow pull together the industry of Martha and the intimacy of Mary, where the work that Martha did with such industry and such diligence was coming out of this joyful full heart of having heard me and met me and learned from me if I could get that we could turn the world on his head and here's a little guess this is speculation at this point I think everything else I've done up to this point has been pretty solidly rooted in the text but here's my little speculation I think Lazarus did what was best Remember back in chapter 11, it says he's described simply as the one Jesus loves. I think one of the reasons Jesus just, just thrills to this guy is he's just nailed it, that he knows when to recline with Jesus and he knows when to put his hand to the plow. He knows when he, he's, he's been in that walking in the shadow of the valley of death so long that he's actually starting to get afraid you see, it says, if, you're, if the Lord's your shepherd, you will not be afraid in that place. And he's actually beginning to be afraid, so he's, he knows when it's time to go back into the green pasture and let the shepherd make you lie down so that he can restore you and make you to become like him again so that when you go back into those places of danger and work and toil, that the very character of God is shining forth from you. He, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Are you busy for the kingdom but not taking enough time to actually be with Jesus? I mean, just one of the simple signs of it, you're just irritated. Doesn't seem like the people around you are doing enough. It feels fruitless. It may be fruitless. May I suggest to you that one of the greatest things that you might consider doing for the sake of becoming more interesting and more dangerous and more fruit-bearing for the kingdom is to just knock off for a day. Did I get that phrase right? (laughs) I mean, just go and recline with Jesus. Be still and know that he's God. He's doing things in the earth. And he actually said this, apart from me, he said, you can do nothing. He didn't say it the other way around. He didn't say apart from you, he could do nothing. And maybe the greatest gift you could give to the kingdom and to the world is just to stop and be quiet and recline with him. I think when we do that, God gets bigger. That's how I understand Psalm 46. 
There's a lot of problems in the world, God says, and if we're not being still, those problems just seem to get bigger and bigger, more overwhelming. But if you stop and recline with Jesus, God gets bigger than all the problems. And he gets louder. You begin to hear him speak in ways that you may have grown deaf to. And he gets closer. You begin to feel his living, breathing, transforming presence in ways you may have not in a while. I was at a funeral a couple years ago, a dear lady that had died quite young. And the pastor told the story that he had uh, done a funeral a couple weeks before. And at the funeral, the person being buried had, uh, had quite an influence on, on young children. Uh, they'd been their Sunday school teacher. And part of their ministry to these young children is helping them to memorize the word of God. And as part of a tribute to this woman, the Sunday school teacher, the children got up from her Sunday school class and recited portions of scripture from memory. And the first little boy to get up was to do Psalm 23, which is really a psalm about what's best. If you receive this gift of lying down, of being quiet, of letting God restore you, then you can go on mission with God and not be afraid. And uh, so this little boy got up at this funeral. He's maybe about seven years old, and he was quite scared to stand up in all front of these people and recite from memory Psalm 23. And so he got up there and he nervously stood. You could see him straining to remember what it was that he was supposed to say. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And that's all you need to know. (laughs) Father God, I pray that we would Take hold afresh that it's all we need to know. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. All I have, I have in you. God, when I need to recline with you, you're there. When I go through valleys of dark valleys, shadow of death valleys, you're there. God, that I 
have this invitation to come and be with you, sit with you, receive from you. When I'm weary, when I'm tired, take your yoke off, uh, put your yoke on and take whatever yokes the world has put on, just let them go. And I have this God who says, come with me. Where are we going? Oh, just come, you'll see. This God who invites me to be with him and then who sends me out. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's all you need to know. God, would we take hold of that afresh today? In Christ's name, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.